Now, we had that interesting reading from Daniel 7 and uh, you may have felt a little bit like Daniel did at the end of it, uh, perplexed and your colour changed. I think what he meant was he went pale because of what he'd seen. It was overwhelming. And uh, what we see in the book of Revelation, we're actually told that the things that Daniel saw in his visions, which the understanding, the interpretation of them were not fully disclosed at the time, uh, those things are actually disclosed in the book of Revelation. The Revelation shows us how Daniel's visions are actually fulfilled. So it's a, a timely reading and we'll, we'll be spending a fair amount of time in Daniel 7 uh, in the coming months as we understand what's, uh, what's there in the book of Revelation. But we're up now to the the seventh of the churches uh, and the end of this first uh, part of the book of Revelation. We'll have a a break, a two-week break after this before we continue. Uh, But really, uh, this seventh church at Laodicea uh, in many ways is the most confronting of them all. To understand what Jesus says to Laodicea, we need the background of Isaiah 65. Here's what Isaiah 65, 11-16 says. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. Sorry, you leave your name to my chosen for a curse and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So uh, the Lord here is speaking to uh, the people of Israel, uh, speaking about their time in exile and uh, notice what's said about those who are facing the Lord's judgment. They're told that they're setting a table for fortune and destiny, false gods, instead of, just move that out of the way, instead of the appointed feasts in the Lord's presence uh, on the Lord's hill, on his holy mountain. And when he calls them, we're told they're ignoring his voice, refusing to listen. As a result, the judgment on them will be that they'll be excluded from the banquet provided by the Lord and their name will become a curse word. 
Well, by contrast, what's said of those who are described as my servants. In other words, those who have heard his call and obey, well, we're told that they will eat and drink and rejoice and sing in the banquet. And their name, apart far from being a curse word, will be defined by their relationship with the Lord, who's, who here is called the God of truth. Now, the Hebrew word for truth is Amen. It's a noun based on the verb Aman, which means to believe. So, what's true can be believed. The God of truth can be believed and trusted, which is why his servants swear by him. When Abraham believed the Lord, Genesis 15, the word is Amen. Abraham said Amen to all that the Lord had promised declaring the Lord to be faithful and trustworthy in all things and worthy of leaving everything in order to answer his call to go to the land that he would show him. The passage in Isaiah then goes on to describe the setting in which people will know this God of truth, the God who is called the Amen For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So Isaiah's readers are called to look beyond their present situation to the future, even beyond their return from exile to when the heavens and the earth will be made new and there will be this new community of God's people, Jerusalem, which will dwell in gladness. This is God's goal for creation and for his people. And the book of Revelation shows us how that goal will be be reached when all the judgments of God are completed, right at the the conclusion of the book, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. So Isaiah's vision... In Isaiah 55, the ideas saturate this letter to the church of uh, to Laodicea. So, as we've been doing, let's look at the portrait of Jesus at the beginning, the promises at the end, and see what that means for the church. He immediately, see, he identifies himself as the Amen. He's saying, I am the God of truth that you know about from Isaiah 65. So again here we see Jesus' divine and human natures here. As God, he is true. As 
a man, he is the faithful and true witness to the God of truth. He makes God's character known to us because he is God and at the same time, he is the perfect human being who is the crystal clear image of God. God's nature has never been, has been seen clearly but in a limited way in creation and in his actions through history but none of that compares with the clarity and the completeness of his revelation to us in Jesus, the Son. Hebrews 1 tells us, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, the themes are are there, same as Isaiah 65. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See how this revelation of God is tied both to his authority as heir of all things and in his participation in the creation of all things. And that's what's being conveyed here. He is the beginning of God's creation. And he's beginning, the beginning both in the sense of time, in that he was there at the beginning when the universe was created, but also in the sense of authority. He is the head of creation, the head of all authority and power. And that's true not just for the creation, but for the new creation. His resurrection from the dead marks the beginning of the recreation of humanity and out of that will then flow the, all things being made new. He is the head of the new creation. Now all of that in and of itself should be enough for us to fall at his feet and worship him. But when we see that in light of the promise he gives to those who conquer, in verse 21, we should be all the more struck by wonder and awe as he brings his supremacy over all things to bear on us. Jesus has, by right of who he is, the ability to lay claim to these titles, the Amen, the faithful, the true, uh, the first of all, the beginning of all creation. But this was a right that he did not grasp or lay hold of. While being in and of himself the display of the Father's glory, he said, I will make my Father's glory known in an even more magnificent way through the salvation of sinners. Lost my spot, here we are. Jesus sits at his Father's right hand on his throne because he conquered. He humbled himself. He took on human form. He became obedient even to the point of death. He bore the judgment that we deserve and took it with him into the depths of death and Hades so that he would then burst out of death into resurrection life, raised up by the Father as a declaration that the judgment is complete 
and sin and death and the devil have been defeated. And the sign that Jesus is truly raised up, that is truly seated at the Father's right hand, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, giving new life, giving power to his people. More than new life and power, though, the church has been raised up with him and seated with him. We share his throne, which he shares with his father. So the truth is of who Jesus is as the Amen, the God of truth, should cause all creatures to praise him for his glory. But what he has done in redeeming unworthy sinners will cause all creatures to praise him, not just for his glory, but for his glorious grace. Now, being seated with Jesus on his throne has two connotations. His, uh, what he said to his 12 disciples in Luke 22, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Eating and drinking speaks of fellowship. It's what the elders of Israel did when they went up onto Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord. It's what the Israelites would do whenever they brought a fellowship offering to the tabernacle and ate the flesh of the sacrifice in the Lord's presence. It's what Jesus did with his disciples. It's what he commands us to express of our fellowship with him and with one another through the Lord's Supper. In the biblical world, eating with someone was an expression of oneness with them. So we'll eat and drink. Judging speaks of ruling like the judges of the Old Testament. Now I believe that here in this passage Jesus is giving a specific role to his 12 apostles which they'll have this uh, ruling role in terms of leading the, the new Israel of the church, God's people, in a present sense that, that the church submits to their authority through the teaching that we have in the scriptures. And maybe, maybe they'll have a, a special role in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have to wait and see. As we continue through Revelation, we'll, we'll discover more of what it means for us to reign with Christ. What does this all mean then for the church in Laodicea and for us? Laodicea is the one church out of all the seven that Jesus has nothing positive to say about them. He's got plenty of positive things to say but not in his assessment of them. Even Sardis, who thought they were alive when they were actually dead, at least had a few among them who hadn't compromised. As far as we know, this isn't the case in Laodicea. However, Whatever their compromise specifically was, Jesus still addresses them as his church. 
He doesn't see them as being too far gone to be restored and revived. It's important that we see this. We Maybe we can sometimes be too quick to write off a church quicker than Jesus himself is. His patience with his church has been demonstrated over 2,000 years through all of the problems and the failures and the compromises and the abuses of people who have claimed his name. He's simply just been consistent with the previous thousands of years when he was patient with Israel, when their idolatry and all their hypocrisy and their violence made the church's mistakes pale into insignificance. Today we have a luxury to be consumers when it comes to church. We have as many, if not more, options of which church we can go to than we do when we go into the supermarket to buy a loaf of bread. And as consumers at heart, because it's the way our culture has trained us, we expect to find a church that has all of the specific ingredients that we think we need to fulfil what we need. Well, our brothers and sisters in the first century didn't have that luxury. It wasn't an option for a believer in Laodicea to say, our church is too lukewarm, I'm going to go down the road to the second church in Laodicea, whatever it was called. The believer in Laodicea had one church to go to. It wasn't an option to jump in their car and to drive 30 minutes to the next church. They were part of the body, warts and all. They knew that their church wouldn't always be perfect, wouldn't always be to their liking because the church is made up of grace-saved sinners. Only Jesus, the head of the church, is perfect and he shows his perfection in his long-suffering patience with his people but also in his loving discipline of his people. And we see this here in this word to this church, a blend of love and judgment, of kindness and severity. Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of creation, he's coming to dine with the Laodiceans, but they don't have their house in order. They're not ready to receive their king. So he tells them, what must be done to be ready. He tells them that they're neither hot nor cold, but are lukewarm. Now, we know from Colossians 4.13 that Laodicea, Colossae and Hierapolis were three cities in close proximity to one another and were often kind of seen in in a group. Now, Hierapolis was famous and still is famous for its hot springs. Colossae was known for its constant supply of cold water that would flow down from the snow-capped mountains nearby. Laodicea in the middle had neither. Now, these geographical figures, uh, pictures could be part of this imagery 
But more likely than that, Jesus is drawing on a hospitality image, as we'll see later in uh, this letter. Just like us today, people of Bible times like their drinks hot or cold. They believed that there were health benefits in having a drink that was either heated up or was chilled. We know that a cold drink is refreshing on a hot day. We know that heating up a drink brings out its flavours and its aromas. And it was actually customary at that time when you drank wine that you would add wine to hot water to drink. If you had guests, it was considered bad hospitality to give them a drink that was at room temperature. It would be taken as an insult that this person was not considered worthy of being given a hot or a cold drink. That idea is actually reflected in Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 10.42. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will be by no means, he will by no means lose his reward. This isn't a passage about Christians helping the poor or thirsty people of the world. It's about the respect that Jesus requires the world to show his disciples. Giving someone water is helping them if they're thirsty, but giving them a cup of cold water is showing them honour. It's welcoming welcoming them into your home to sit at your table and to drink. So Jesus rightfully expects to be treated as an honoured guest among his people, to be served the hot or the cold drink that says you are both welcome and worthy of honour. However, his people he says, are like tepid water, objectionable, something to be vomited, spat out of his mouth. They have a low view of Jesus. They've lost sight of this vision of him as the Amen, the ruler over all creation. So if he was to come into their home, they'd give him a lukewarm drink. This low view they have of Jesus actually comes from a high view of themselves. Verse 17. Their assessment of themselves is, I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing. It could be referring to material wealth or to spiritual wealth, but possibly both because the prosperity gospel teaches that Material wealth is a sign of spiritual wealth and maybe they've taken on board that prosperity gospel. But the problem isn't so much just their claim to be rich, it's as much how they think they've become rich. Do you notice the three I's? I am rich because I have prospered, made myself become rich, and I don't need anyone else to help me. Now that should resonate with us today. Not only do we attribute our affluence and our comfort 
to ourselves and the efforts that we make instead of seeing it all as a gift from the Father. But we can also fall into the trap of thinking that our spiritual health is also due to our own piety or our self-discipline or our innate capacity to be spiritual instead of seeing it's only God's grace that is sufficient for us. Without grace, we are nothing. So as soon as we claim that we're rich, that we're prosperous, that we're self-sufficient, what does Jesus do? He comes and he knocks us off our pedestal. He tells us the truth about what we are apart from grace. He says you're wretched and pitiable. It's not merely that we're creatures who in comparison to our Creator are fully dependent upon Him, but our wretchedness, our pitiableness comes from our sin in contrast to the Holy One. We are called in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. So Jesus tells us three things about the wretchedness, the pitiableness of sin and then he shows us how he is the solution. Firstly, he says, you're poor. The word literally means to crouch. It was used to describe a beggar squatting in the street. This is abject poverty with no home, no family, no possessions except the filthy rags on our backs, rags which we claim is our righteousness but which is only worth throwing into the fire. So we're poor. Sin robs us as human beings of our dignity and it leaves us crouching in our own filth. Secondly, it says, you're blind. Now we know a number of the beggars that Jesus encountered were blind. And being blind, they were unable to be educated, unable to work, they were considered out of favour with God. Remember when uh, someone came to Jesus and said, this man born blind, was that his sin or his parents' sin that he was blind? Jesus healed blind people as a sign that he had come to bring light into the darkness. But he also did it to call the religious elite who claimed to be able to see, he called out their hypocrisy. So sin plunges the human heart into darkness where we are unable to see or know the God of truth. Thirdly, he says you're naked. Probably the most wretched and pitiable thing you might see is a blind beggar who's had even their clothes taken from them and they're left naked on the side of the road, unable to see their own shame and humiliation. Adam and Eve, once they'd sinned, became ashamed of their nakedness and in fear they hid from God. So sin enslaves us to guilt and shame. It enslaves us to a fear, a fear of being exposed before 
the God who sees all. Now many people are offended at this portrait of human beings and they'll reject it because they can't see that it in any way describes themselves. It feels like too negative a picture, not good for self-esteem in an age where we're supposed to be telling everyone how wonderful and how special they are. But what's offensive about a blind, naked beggar is not merely that it's an insult to the ideal picture of a human being, but the the insult, the offence, is that they are a human being who is created in the image of God, a creature who is supposed to reflect the glory of their creator. The degradation of sin, the wretchedness, The pitiableness is first and foremost an insult to God himself who deserves above all to be represented, to be imaged accurately, truthfully. As sinful human beings, we lie, so we make God out to be a liar. We commit adultery and so we make God out to be unfaithful. We steal and so we make God out to be a thief. We kill And we make God out to be a murderer. Unlike that man born blind, our wretchedness is actually of our own doing, shown by the fact that we wallow in our sin, yet we still claim to be rich and prosperous and self-sufficient. Well, here's the good news. Verse 17 isn't the end of the story. After painting a picture of this blind, naked beggar, Jesus paints another picture in verse 18. It's a picture of the gospel, which is the only solution to our wretchedness. He tells us how this pitiable state may be reversed. And we see the gospel straight away in the opening words, I counsel you to buy from me. He uses the word not of a commander, but of a counsellor. Literally, someone who comes alongside, who speaks words that change our mind. That's the job of a counsellor. This is Jesus stepping down to be with us in the gutter, to speak to us right where we are in our wretched state. And the word buy, buy from me, might sound like he's saying that we need to give him something so that he can give us something in return. But that's not what's meant. The word literally means go to the marketplace. Jesus has come to us in the gutter in order to take hold of us, lift us out of the gutter and bring us into the marketplace where he provides all that we need to deal with our wretchedness. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. How can you buy and, buy and eat if you have no money? Well, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Buy it from me because it's free. Jesus deals with our sin in his gospel gifts. Firstly, for our poverty, 
he provides gold. And not just any gold, but gold refined by the fire. This is 24 karat gold, 100% pure, the most expensive gold that you can buy. Jesus gives us his riches in exchange for our poverty. 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. True riches are not what we accomplish ourselves, but that which we receive from Christ through his death. For our nakedness, he provides clothing, but not just any clothing, white garments. They signify purity, holiness, that covers up and takes away our shame. He gives us purity in exchange for our sin. At the cross he became sin and a curse so that we might become the righteousness of God. And as we'll see, white garments are also priestly garments, signifying a a purity that qualifies us to actually go right into the presence of God. Thirdly, for our blindness, he provides salve, healing ointment to restore our sight. And Jesus' use of words here is interesting because he uses the word anoint, which means to smear or to rub, but was most commonly, nearly exclusively used to refer to the anointing of kings and priests. Jesus Christ is the anointed one. That's what his title means. In the law, no one was allowed to function as a priest if he was disabled in any way. So blindness would have disqualified someone, even if he was a Levite descended from Aaron from being a priest. But being anointed by the salve that Jesus provides not only cures our blindness so we can see again, but again with that priestly imagery allows us access into the tabernacle to see the God of truth. Now did you notice that the order of Jesus' solution was slightly different to the order of the problem. So he deals with our poverty and our nakedness and only then our blindness. Maybe we shouldn't make too much of this, but it strikes me that this too is a picture of grace. If we're buying gold and garments, but we're blind, how are we to know that the gold is pure? or that the garments are truly white. Those things can only be determined by looking. So, to complete the picture of Jesus taking us out of the gutter, bringing us into the marketplace, we still remain hopeless in our blindness, and so he purchases the gold and the garments on our behalf, and only then does he open our eyes so that we can see what he's done. And so we can see that it's been all of him and none of us that's done it. So it's because of verse 18 that we can hear those hard words of verse 17 and know that they are 
the actions and words of his love. Jesus loves us enough to expose our state as sinners. He loves us enough to give of himself to deal with our sin. He loves us enough to offend us by telling us the truth about ourselves so that we can see his grace for what it is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. What grace that before Jesus comes to visit, he sends in advance everything that is needed to have our house ready. After all the work that he's done in loving discipline, he says, it's not up there, he says, here I am. I'm at the door. I'm knocking. I've arrived. I'm ready to come in and to eat with you. Have you gladly received all the gifts of grace that I've given you so that you're ready to welcome me in? You're ready to sit down and eat with me and I with you.